I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Galen, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mirror Framework, M-E-E-R Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. I just sometimes wonder if it's worth all this. I mean, what you're fighting for. We might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. Now, what of it? I'll be out of his misery. You know how you sound, Mr. Blaine? Like a man who's trying to convince himself of something he doesn't believe in his heart. Each of us has a destiny, for good or for evil. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. What you just heard was a clip from the classic film Casablanca, specifically a conversation between the lead character, Rick Blaine, played by the immortal Humphrey Bogart, and the anti-Nazi Czech resistance leader, Victor Laszlo. As it turns out, the fictional Laszlo was based in part on a real person. Namely, the aristocrat Count Richard Kudenhove Kalergi, a man who envisioned a unified Europe years before the founding of the European Union. Joining us to discuss Count Kalergi's fascinating life story and his relevance today is Martin Bond, author of Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard, Count Richard Kodenhove Kalergi and his vision for Europe. And if you want to know where that title comes from, well, you'll find out in the conversation to follow. Later on in the program, we'll be talking with Brian Grotsky, a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, about sanctions and Russia with a focus on how these current sanctions could actually critically harm the opposition to Vladimir Putin. All that and more in the second half of our program. But first, Martin Bond on Hitler's cosmopolitan bastard, Count Richard Kudenhove Kalergi, and his vision for Europe. 
Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I feel is very timely uh, given current events and the subject he covers in his book. Uh, Martin Bond, author of Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard, a biography of the little known, in many ways, Count Richard Kudenhov Kalergi. And I hope I didn't mispronounce his name there, but how are you doing today, Martin? I'm doing fine, thanks. Thank you very much. Nice transatlantic conversation. <laughs> so, Martin, if you could, maybe you could give uh, my listeners a little background on who you are and the work you do, and then we can get into why the title for this book, because that's a title that stands out, uh, Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard. <laughs> well, I'm very glad the title's striking. My publishers will enjoy that, too. <laughs> um, I'll just display for you straight off the book. I have it in my hand here. He's a rather stylish looking gentleman, I suppose. Basically, uh, came of age in the First World War, lived his 20 key years of his life up to the Second World War, then was in exile in America during that war, came back to Europe um, soon after 45, and helped in the creation of a more united Western Europe that was the story of the 1950s and 60s. Um, but he had made a great first start, if you like, after the First World War, with a big movement which was called Pan-Europa and rivaled what the Nazis were trying to do in Germany. The, you know perfectly well the Hitler project was a project to increase German domination of Central Europe, eventually of all of Europe. Uh, and his alternative, Kudenhof-Kalergi's alternative, was to have something like the United Europe that we know now, a, an assembly of 28, 29 states, uh, all of whom would be sovereign in their own way, but would come together in something like the confederal United States of the 18th century. It was where the <clears throat> individual sovereignty was largely maintained, but for external purposes and foreign policy and things that could better be done together, eventually a common currency, these states would act as one. And we're seeing right now in current affairs, um, if people have other views of geopolitics and try and push them through with force, as Hitler did, and maybe now we see Putin trying to do, um, can be a messy, messy process. And that, that title, Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard, I guess Hitler actually uh, called him that in uh, one of the volumes of Mein Kampf. You're absolutely right. When Hitler came to write Mein Kampf, this man was one of the enemy he had in mind when he was writing his story. And he devoted uh, several pages to him in the, what was the third volume. Uh, eventually, this third volume was never published until afterwards, in the 1960s. But nonetheless, in it, he called him, in German, Allerweltbastard, which I translate as cosmopolitan bastard, partly because he was indeed technically illegitimate. Uh, we can go into his life story soon, if you like. But um, this man didn't begin in any conventional way, put it like that. And the second element that made him cosmopolitan, why I use the word cosmopolitan in this translation is because it was a sort of shorthand for Jewish. And he was indeed um, a great admirer of Judaism. He wasn't Jewish himself. He was Catholic and half Japanese, half Austrian. But he married a Jewish wife and uh, as did one of his brothers, by the way. Um, 
and uh, he was full of admiration for what the Jews were achieving in society in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, at least by the end of the 19th century, it was already apparent that they were going to be a strong force, in particular in Germany. That's why Hitler picked them out as a prospective enemy, because it was um, easy to pin a lot of blame for what was going on in the 1920s upon the Jews, because they did play a prominent role. Uh, but the difference is that Kudenhoek-Kalergi thought that was a good thing and not a bad thing. So let's get into the early life of uh, Count Kalergi. Uh, you mentioned that he, he has an interesting uh, sort of background. I think his mother was uh, a geisha, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, I mean, that's pretty exotic, isn't it? Um, his father, to start on the, on the male side of it, um, his father was very bright, very bright indeed, but there was a, um, a sex scandal in his late teens, 20s, um, with an unwanted pregnancy, his desire to marry his the woman he made pregnant, the father forbidding it, the woman committing suicide, the son essentially being banished, but banished in a rather elite manner. He was... Um, encouraged to join. He was pushed into the Austrian diplomatic service straight out of university and sent abroad uh, to quash the whole business. And he was sent first to Greece, uh, or first indeed to Turkey, then to Greece, uh, then to South America, uh, second round in South America, first in Brazil, then in, in uh, Argentina. And then after that, he was sent to Tokyo um, to set up the new embassy that the Austrians were setting up in the, the Japanese empire. It was empire to empire, if you like. And uh, their old consulate, which was a big trading post, was being upgraded to being an embassy. And uh, while there, he very quickly acquired a concubine. Uh, and this concubine bore him two sons. Uh, she was obviously ravishingly beautiful, otherwise that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, but the two sons and she had to be legitimized in order to secure inheritance back. It was a question of money and land back in Austria. And uh, they, you know, she converted from Buddhism to Catholicism. The boys were uh, made legitimate with permission by both emperors. And eventually the diplomat brought them back to Austria and managed his grand estates uh, until he died slightly prematurely in 1906. And then the boys went off to boarding school, the sort of Eton of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Theresianium in Vienna, which was very cosmopolitan, if I use it in a wider sense now, not just Jewish, but international, very international in its education. Uh, and when he came out from that school, Kudnukalegi declared once that he now thought in terms of continents, not in terms of countries, which is a very interesting take on the whole nationality problem. He thought in bigger groups than individual countries. And out of that sprang his idea for a, a pan-European union. Yeah, I, I want to get to that. But first, where do you think his ideas start to form about uh, Europe and, and related topics? Is it a matter of um, key aspects of his early life and his childhood? Is it his, um, you know, it seems like he was born with uh, a certain level of privilege in life. Is it, mm, sure. uh, what are the factors that lead to his sort of um, political thought? Well, they're, they're, they're personal in one sense and they're, they're international and um, independent, as it were, on the other. Um, the result of big events. 
one of the personal things is that very early on, just as he was leaving school and just becoming a student, so just 18, uh, and he was picked up by, pounced upon, he, he fell in love with uh, a much older, very successful Jewish actress called Ida Rowland, who really was the star of the stage in, in Vienna at the time. This was um, just at the beginning and the year before and then the beginning of the First World War. And he spent the war very much, and many years after, but very much under her influence. And she was powerfully persuaded of pacifism. She was a strong supporter of different national movements for pacifism in Austria, in Germany and elsewhere, which obviously didn't manage to stop the First World War. But nonetheless, this was a strong strand of opinion against war. You can see that's around nowadays as well in different countries, not surprisingly. Um, but this marked him very much. And he, he looked at the First World War. This is the big outside event that influenced him with the notion that peace was a priority absolutely clearly in his mind and and that's why he he found this proposal uh, of a consensual mutually agreed way forwards rather than one dominated by a successful victorious whoever it was be it the germans or the french or whoever else might have conquered in the first world war so pan europa tell me a little bit about that movement um, and, and Count Kalergi's vision uh, for Europe, and also maybe the ways in which it's been misinterpreted. Because my impression is yeah. he's not saying, uh, okay, if you're British, you have to give up your British identity. He's saying you're both European and uh, whatever nationality you may belong to. Yes, yes, sure. He, he's got this very clearly in mind that you can have dual nationality and not in the way that you might have British and French or British and German, but British and something which is bigger and involves other people, um, other nations. And he has this from a very early age, very early age, certainly by the time he's leaving university, he's talking in those terms. And within a couple of years of the end of the First World War, he's started to make his name as a political commentator uh, in political magazines from Berlin and, and, and Vienna in particular, uh, largely writing in German at that stage, though he was fluent in German, French and English, and you can't tell that it's a foreigner writing in any one of those languages. It's really wonderful to see um, stuff flowing from his pen like that. Uh, but the, the idea gelled for him, I suppose, around 1920, 21, something like that. These were very, very turbulent times in, in Europe. You can see this is only three years after the Russian Revolution. Russia's still in the Civil War. Um, uh, there is a rash of a dozen new states created out of the Versailles settlement across Central and Eastern Europe, the broken up old uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, uh, a new Baltic, uh, a new um, Balkan grouping of, of Yugoslavia, um, but most of these states are having battles or some sort of border skirmishes, at least, uh, with their neighbouring states because the sort of broad brush view from Versailles was um, give the Czech lands to the Czechs, for instance, it included a large German minority, and it also included the Slovaks as well, which in the 1990s have now separated, but. Um, were not obviously separated then. It was a single state of Czechoslovakia and a very, very large state. Um, but the, the the disturbed scene, the politically and militarily, 
militarily disturbed scene of, of Europe at that time. The French reoccupied the Rhineland at one stage. Um, it's it's very, very disturbed and worrying. People think there's going to be another war. And he says at one stage, the next world war, that's the second after the only one he's experienced so far, um, the second one will be really devastating because by then technology will have evolved so far that you'll be able to kill at a distance. The bombers will get through. Um, you'll be using poison gas. It'll be a question of extermination of people. It won't be just armies fight fighting as we were used to in the 19th century. Uh, this First World War is a transition into something which is much more totalitarian in terms of war. Uh, it's a sort of very prescient when you think that later Goebbels asks the German people, do you want total war? To a resounding yes from the assembled people at the time in that, in that audience. That's precisely what he was prophesying by about 1920-21. And in 23, he writes Pan-Europa in order to, to have a proper program. I want to talk a little bit more about that book. But first, it, it sounds like he's deeply influenced by pacifism. And in a lot of ways, his work is about avoiding this coming war. Yeah, yeah, very true. Very true. That's the great thing that looms over him. He, he, he's, he's come of age in it. He's set up with this actress wife, um, Ida Rowland, in, well, they, they're together from 1914. They marry in 15. Uh, she's 12 years older, as I said. And um, she lives till 51 and he lives on till 1972. So um, there's a long period. And if you look back on it historically now, this is the awful period of the 20th century when there was a war pretty well everywhere, where everywhere you looked, either they were colonial or ex-colonial or wars of colonization for the Italians, for instance. Um, there were civil wars, vast ones like the, the Russian one. Um, yeah, he was trying to avoid that being the scene and get something better on the map instead. So you were going to get to this uh, 1923. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a book that comes out by him uh, yep. simply titled uh, Pan Europa. And, uh, you know, he, he sort of has been described as, as pushing for a sort of utopian ideal in that book. Uh, what exactly is the ideal he is pushing? And is it fair to call it uh, a utopian one? Well, he uses the word himself, to be fair. He says, you know, all good ideas start as utopias, he says. Right? It's just this, the ones that matter are the ones which you can turn into reality. And he calls on the youth of Europe to turn this utopia that he's putting in Pan-Europa into reality. So the youth, meaning the next generation of Europeans, those who didn't go through the First World War, he calls on them to make good uh, the lost promise, if you like, the lost promise of the, the first decades. Um, so, so it is idealistic, obviously, um, but it's idealistic with two or three elements which are extremely well grounded. And he offers a history of different ways in which Europe has come together and failed in the past, uh, including, for instance, Alexander the Great, um, the, the, the spread of the first Europe across the Middle East and, and, and further right into India done that way by force of arms. Almost all the others previously have been force of arms, by the way, uh, though he does give economic factors quite a, a good play in his series of uh, histories of Europe. Napoleon is one of the last big ones. He says after the French Revolution, then the last vast expansion of the French all over Europe 
um, which did bring many benefits in terms of harmonization of laws, increase in standards, uh, standardization rather, uh, across different fractured uh, societies. Um, but he's not all. He, he, he does admire Napoleon, but he doesn't admire him uh, as if he, he doesn't put him on the same measure, as it were, as his immediate competitor, Hitler, uh, whom he sees as only nefarious, only evil, not as in any way good. And it's quite coincidental in a sense, but very striking, that the book comes out in the last week of October 1923, and it's in the beginning of November 23, when Hitler launches the Beer Hall Putsch in Munich. So you know, just, just down the road from Vienna, as it were, you've got a totally different way of going about reordering Europe. And it's manifested in a failed putsch. And Hitler then is sent to jail just for a short year or a year and a bit, during which he writes Mein Kampf. And he has these, he's briefed by the same man who's been briefing Kudnhoff Glergi about the importance of geopolitics. There are overlaps all over the place, but their interpretation is totally different. One looks marked by peace, looking for consent. The other is marked by war, looking for domination. It's so fascinating to me uh, because they, they both uh, have these connections uh, to Austria and they're, they're almost like uh, two different faces uh, from yes. the, the same world. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. In fact, they were overlapping. If you go back, it's, it's much further back. If you go back when he was um, a schoolboy in, in his teenage years, going to this posh boarding school, in, dressed up in a semi-military uniform with a small sword, you know, the way they did in those days, the aristocratic students, young students. And uh, Hitler is somewhere on the side trying to earn a living from house painting. You know? uh, totally different worlds, one right at the bottom of society and the other one right at the top. So then can we talk a little about how Kalergi fits into the world as we enter into uh, World War II. Um, what is happening in Kalergi's life and what is happening with his thinking? Where are things headed for him? Well, following his book, he, he sets up a political movement, if you like. I mean, it's, it's never a mass party, mass, uh, it, it's not a mass political party. It's like an international think tank, uh, but with 10,000 members, Mark. I mean, that's it. But, but they are people drawn from the elites of society, the cultural elite, Thomas Mann, Einstein, uh, Sigmund Freud. They're members of this pan-Europa movement. Uh, obviously, fairly sleeping members, I guess. I don't think they contribute. Mann contributes quite a bit, but the other two, not so much. Um, but he's getting people to try and deliver in their countries a big lobby for what he's asking or, or making grow from Austria or the remains of Austria after the collapse of the empire. And uh, it's quite successful. He has outfits like this in about 15 countries across Europe. Uh, he even comes to the States on a lecture tour and sets up a support group in the States as well in 1926. So, and a translation of his book is brought out in New York in 26. So, um, New York uh, and, and the New World is not left out of this by any means at all. Um, but when Hitler seizes power in Germany, he immediately bans everything to do with Pan-Europa. Um, he breaks up the association there, uh, the Gestapo take over the money, um, he grabs whatever archives he can and checks through who's who and who's, who's, who's for the camps and who can he make use of and things like that. Uh, just what's happening elsewhere now in Europe, I'm afraid, you know, in taken areas. Um, but uh, 
Kudenhoek-Pilegi then has lost Germany, so he goes back to Vienna and runs his show from Vienna as opposed to, in opposition to Hitler's Germany. And for another five years, until the Germans take Vienna, the Anschluss, uh, he is organizing Eastern and Central Europe to have coordinated policies themselves, which are not German dominated. By the time uh, the Nazis come into Vienna in 1938, he has to flee. Uh, he makes good contact to Churchill then at that time. I, I was going to uh, say he very narrowly escapes, is my understanding. Oh, yes. The escape was literally a few miles behind them, a few kilometers behind them on the road was the Gestapo car or cars, I don't know which, which were chasing him and the former uh, Dolphus, uh, the, the, the first murdered um, chancellor of uh, Austria, who was murdered by the Nazis in 1934, uh, but Kudenhoof knew him and was advising him. And he and Dolphus's widow and their family were in a couple of cars that just got out ahead of the Gestapo. Very lucky. Otherwise, well, there wouldn't be much of a book to write, frankly, he'd be dead. But uh, he did get out and, as I say, made contact to Churchill, was over in Paris and in London, advising governments before the end of the phony war, which was the middle of May, May, June of 1940, when he had to flee again. Uh, and he fled then to Lisbon, which was still neutral, where the Americans, um, mainly through the very nascent secret services, the OSS, uh, fairly certainly, we don't have real proof of this, but I, I, you can't see any other way the money could have been put together, got him and his family out on one of the big flying boats of the time, the Yankee Clipper, uh, which was servicing Lisbon and New York. Uh, it took all day and was a sort of silver service flying boat where they had separate bedrooms indeed. <laughs> Not a sort of service we understand today. But uh, he got out then in June, no, August they left, um, 1940. And he was a very keen uh, proponent in largely West Coast, but um, also uh, in Washington and went on a couple of study tours on a study lecture tours uh, across um, the states, preaching that America should join in the war very quickly as soon as possible must support Britain because there were two problems. One was the Nazi problem. The Nazis were expanding all over Europe and they had a philosophy which was so anti-Christian, uh, anti-Greco-Roman, anti, um, anti the cultural history on which the West had been built, that they had to be defeated. But precisely at the same time, he said, and also behind them, you can see, will come the communists from Russia and that will be the second war we will have to fight. Now, this was totally unacceptable in America in 1940, even 41. What mattered was if America got into the fight, that there was a strong Russia, that Stalin was there with as many troops as possible to defeat the Germans. And it was only in 1945 when Truman took over um, that Kudenhoub's message got through in the White House. And then he was close to Marshall, close to Truman, and they took on board his ideas that you had to organize Europe. Otherwise, each state would be picked off one after the other, because the opponent then, the new Russia, 
uh, was just so big and so coherent and so coordinated and so strong that you had to have coordination. Out of all that sprang Council of Europe, even NATO, uh, and then by another route, uh, the EU that we know today. But he wasn't closely associated with that springing of the EU. That was a French initiative, uh, Franco-German with the Benelux countries, uh, and he wasn't in on that inner circuit. So it's interesting to me, uh, that is a very interesting view to have that he's already sort of uh, saying Russia and the Soviet oh, yeah. Union are going to be a problem uh, during this conflict, this World War II conflict. Um, what led him to those views on Russia and the Soviet Union so early on? Well, it was from very early on. I mean, th this guy was during the First World War. I mean, we all know the history and the 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 the, the SARS armies um, were failing and uh, disturbance both at the front and back home led eventually to the Bolsheviks taking power, a small group, uh, but very, very committed. And the program that they had was bread and peace. And so they made an early peace in the First World War, the Brest-Litovsk peace, in the end of 1917, a whole year before the rest of the First World War finished. Uh, this didn't involve the Americans at all. The Americans were only in the Western Front, but it jolly well involved the Germans and the Austrians who had been the opposition to, to the Russians on the Eastern Front. And those were big gains for Austria and Germany and big losses for the Soviet Union. They, they bought a very big loss. Um, and this has been, in a sense, history ever since. But the, the Kudenhu's reaction to that was that jolly good thing, because what they stand for is incompatible with this Christian Greco-Roman heritage that we have. There's something Asiatic, there's something distant, there's something not right in moral terms, not admirable about their egalitarian approach to society. I mean, the, the communist approach, the manifesto, was something he simply saw as, if you like, as a heresy. It was something which he didn't find you could argue with. You, almost all the rest of his life, he's not in contact with Russia. He's opposed to Russia, the Soviet Union, as it developed. Even when it's a major ally in the Second World War, he's still warning and warning and warning. And the Soviets know of this perfectly well. I mean, there, there's a small episode in America where a Soviet agent, he's in fact a Romanian, but he, he gets in and does get under the skin and is undetected and, and sets up an alternative think tank project, which is much more acceptable to the, uh, the presidential scene in 1942, 43, 44. Uh, Dolovent is his name. He's only unmasked after the war, but he very largely manages to displace Kutenhu from any White House contact at that time. So, so I'm curious, and I, I don't know if I'm wording this correctly, but is there any type of almost like a, a, a chauvinism in his thinking in any way when it comes to, it, it seems like he is very, not pro one nationality, but like pro, he's very pro-European. Does that lead to any sort of chauvinism? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, it does. I think. I mean, he is West. Uh, I mean, he isn't. I mean, when you look at him, he's half Japanese. Um, but, I mean, but out of that springs this identity of continents, not countries, and the continent he chooses is Europe. And around that, he builds, if you like, a a quasi-national identity of being European. He makes it wider because of his wartime experience in America. It's the West. Right? But it's still, it's white, it's European. Uh, there's a, a letter later on, he has a long correspondence with the gold, several hundred letters. And in one of them, granted it's only one of them, but in one of them, he lets off about the um, um, the growth of the United Nations, which has now got so many uh, Oriental or black people in it, you know, representing new countries, which aren't part of what his world was. Um, and he complains about this. He said, what should happen is that the white northern lot, and here, quite exceptionally, he includes Russia. Good heavens, he's including Russia. It's, it's just post-Stalin, just post-Stalin. Uh, and he says, America, Europe, that's de Gaulle's view of Europe, big, big patch of these nations, and Russia should all come together in order to ensure that the developed North dominates the United Nations. Of course, it comes to nothing. This is pie in the, pie in the sky dreaming, and it's sort of, you know, blue skies work. But uh, it's there in a letter to the goal. So, you know, shows the way the wind was blowing. I'm actually glad you mentioned de Gaulle. I was interested in uh, the, the relationship between this uh, French president, Charles de Gaulle, and uh, Count Calergi. I know that's that's probably a, a very minute uh, sort of issue, but I've always been fascinated by de Gaulle, so I was wondering what their relationship uh, was like. Well, they, they knew each other from 1943, who was the first contact. Couldn't um, have wrote to de Gaulle, who was in North Africa, leading the Free French Forces then because he knew that de Gaulle and Churchill didn't get on well together. There was a personality clash there between de Gaulle and, and Churchill. Um, but he wrote to, Churchill, uh, to de Gaulle, and offering him the chairmanship of this pan-Europa movement, which had been blown to smithereens by the Nazis. Well, it was very good to offer it to someone who was a nationalist, anti-Nazi Frenchman with a wide vision of Europe. Good idea. And de Gaulle considered it carefully, exchange of letters with, with Kudenhoff on this point, saying, I would like to do it in principle, but I can't accept it now because the colleagues I need politically within France to get back into power, basically, will be either nationalist or from the left, communist left included, and I would offend them if I took on now the mantle of pan-Europa but I'm much in sympathy with your ideas. <laughs> so the, the thing starts off on a good footing, but it's not formalized until some years later. Also, th this may be another almost uh, footnote-ish uh, type issue that I wanted to deal with, but I was very interested. You have a whole chapter that deals with um, pacifists and uh, Freemasons. And I was wondering yes. how do Freemasons uh, figure into this story? Well, it is it, an interesting and one again with some slight contradictions within it. Um, there's traditionally been a big distance between the Catholic Church and Freemasonry. Um, and the Catholics were very suspicious. The, the formal Catholic Church structure is very suspicious of Freemasonry as a sort of secret society that might stand for 
things which weren't properly under church control. I mean, and there were theological as well as social and practical reasons for that. But when the states of Europe were all, as it were, reshuffled at the end of the First World War, uh, a number of states came about, including Austria, the leftover Austria, which were no longer church dominated or church controlled. And previously, it's true to say that the Austrian Empire had had a very strong church identity to it, Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, total, but very strong. And in the new Austria, uh, immediately they permitted um, Freemason lodges, whereas previously they'd been banned. So they had existed here and there and a bit in secret and a bit more in Hungary than in Austria, but nonetheless, they were not well regarded before 1914. And after 1918, they were very well regarded because they were part of this new independence and uh, key people were in them. For instance, uh, in the lodge, and there were seven or eight lodges straight away in Vienna uh, within two or three years, in one of the lodges, which was the the poshest one, if you like, Louis Rothschild was a member. Uh, um, and that was, uh, and also the head of the peace movement, uh, Eric Fried was a member. Um, and Kudenhof-Kalegi was invited to become a Mason. And he became a Mason over three, four years, some fairly shortish period. But um, Actually, I exaggerate there, he joined for three or four years publicly, and then he publicly distanced himself from his lodge when his political movement began to take off, because the Nazis immediately criticized him for being a pawn of the Freemasons. And in order to distance himself from that criticism, he left his lodge. But it's a slight technicality in those terms. He kept very, very good personal contacts in the world of Freemasonry. And when he died, um, 50 years after that absence, there were Freemasonry obituaries and Freemasonry journals about him. So you can see that the contacts were still there, even after the formal experience had, had ended. Um, but what he liked about it was it fitted his personality. I mean, it, it was a movement or was presented there as a movement of well-minded people, high-minded, slightly idealistic, um, wanting to improve society and improve their own characters through this association, through what they did, highly charitably minded, socially committed. Um, and he could see this as being superior to any national identity. He has a wonderful declaration, which I quote in the book, which is it's so impressive his own view of what he was, where he come from, how he didn't feel he belonged to any particular social strata or any particular nation. But like the Freemason movement, he was a bit of everything everywhere. That's how he saw himself. So it's interesting that gets into uh, something I wanted to deal with. At the beginning of the book, uh, you talk a little bit about the challenges writing about uh, Kalergi's life story, because I think the way you put it is that uh, Kalergi was very interested in how the narrative around his life looked. And, and you know, he was, I think he wrote multiple versions of his memoir. And I, you mentioned that there were uh, maybe elements of his personality that aren't entirely appealing. So could you talk about that aspect, uh, the, the sort of contradictions of Kalergi and maybe uh, the, the faults within his personality? Sure. Yeah, and I think I think one of the faults leads to 
his lack of overt success. And I don't want to undermine him in this tool because I think long term he has had a massive influence on the way European leaders think. Massive influence, even though it's often not acknowledged and sometimes not known. I mean, people have gone with the swim of the way his ideas have, have developed. But at the time, he did himself an injustice by assuming he was right. Um, he was a very clever young man, very. Uh, in his school years, he wrote the outline of a thesis uh, on ethical issues of values and ethics. And that became his doctoral dissertation three years later in university. So the guy is three or four years ahead of, yeah, he's very, very bright. <laughs> and he knows it and he shows it. And he doesn't really expect anyone else to challenge him. He is a leader. He sees himself as a leader. Uh, and he doesn't think a lot of actually about democracy um, okay the masses endorse the leadership but uh, it's the leaders that matter uh, he he has a couple of very callous lines in one or two places and um, one is a description of the first world war's losses he says it was a great shame that so many people were killed millions were killed but much more important is that a handful of geniuses are now no longer there we would have had the benefit of the geniuses supported by the masses, but the masses don't, just don't count to it. Not, not to interrupt you, but that's really interesting because in some ways it seems like he almost has um, his own version of, of, of almost like a great man theory uh, where yeah. you need these geniuses. They're, they're almost more important than, you know, the, the rabble. Yeah. Well, he does. He, he is, he's very attracted to strong powerful personalities. Now, his first wife is a strong, powerful personality, and I don't think it's come from her. I think it's quite natural that he was attracted to her because she was like that. But he goes for these, and at one point he thinks that Mussolini, who was a great leading light of the early strongman theory, the first fascist state in Europe, um, that he would be a suitable leader for Pan-Europa. He could call the others together. And he would persuade them because he is a strong, capable, forward-looking leader. You know, later on, it, it cools a bit, but <laughs> he, he is quite susceptible to this. He, he much admires Churchill, obviously. Um, uh, de, de Gaulle is another great one he admires. Obviously, Truman, likewise. Um, and he goes around. He goes around Europe collecting heads of state, heads of government, foreign ministers, who all are very impressed with him. Um, Gustav Stresemann, he visits, uh, who's, who's one of the key figures in the Weimar Republic, uh, he visits him and Stresemann writes in his diary after the visit, visited by Kudenhof Kilegi this afternoon. Uh, I don't fully agree with what he says, but he's obviously so heartfelt and so clearly intelligent about this. He is going to make his mark, you know, and one big man recognizes another, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. It sounds like maybe he had some blind spots uh, just because of his sort of aristocratic background, which it places him in a very different world than uh, maybe people from other social stratas. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, he has these ideas that, you know, end up making him, I would say, the sort of hidden founding father of, of Europe. Uh, you know, he may not have founded the, the EU, but a lot of his ideas uh, end up echoing. Yeah, sure, sure. And and you see, uh, I mean, I, I, I won't go into more than a quick enumeration, 
And he thinks that he, th he thinks of the, f the common currency, right? That's in his in his in his founding document. There ought to be a common currency. There ought to be a common foreign policy. There ought to be a common army. We ought to have some structure of, of enforcement of law internally within one Europe. So we need a court and we need the the uh, the law, the legal enforcement powers to enforce its judgments over the whole of Europe, which we've got. We've got a court of justice. Um, uh, we need, we need, he says, an assembly as well, where all these ex the expression of the people's will, but he doesn't look on it as people's will. That's not his phrase. Um, the views of the member states must come to the fore, which we have. We have a council for the members of uh, the EU. Um, what he wouldn't have been so sympathetic with was the development of a, at least not before the war, of a parliament and the notion that the authority might come from the people. He didn't get sympathetic for that until he'd experienced America. When he'd seen the democracy of that time, working in America in the war, and then came back to Europe, he's pressing very hard for a European parliament. He sets up a European Parliamentary Union, for instance, which is MPs from all the independent parliaments in Western Europe and gets them to lobby back home for a common parliament. And he gets it very quickly in the Council of Europe, which is set up in 1949. It does other things as well, but it has the first Europe-wide parliament elected right, or appointed actually from parliaments all across Europe. And that's a forerunner of the European Parliament, which belongs to the EU, which we now have for the European Union. So just a few more questions there. It's very interesting to me. There is, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Hitler had a great contempt uh, for Kalergi. And it's interesting because even to this day, uh, the, the far right, uh, these, these sort of fringes of the far right, uh, truly despise Kalergi so much that they have uh, this conspiracy theory that they call the Kalergi plan. Uh, could you discuss the, the far right's contempt uh, for Kalergi uh, today and, and how uh, their ideas and conspiracy theories about Kalergi uh, have become a part of the sort of far right narrative? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, they, they, they certainly do. I mean, they, they, they are the people I think in whom in whose circles, uh, I would say, memories of Kalergi have, have continued to circulate so easily. Um, this distorted view of Kalergi, I would say, is what's been projected by them. But only since about the turn of the century, somewhere close to 2000, up to, he died in 1972, as I say, and, and for the better part of 30 years after that, um, it was the bit I'm talking about, the, the forerunner, the prophet of the EU was the story. And because the EU was changing and the uh, Europe itself, uh, end, of the, end of the Cold War in 91, the collapse of the Soviet Union, that now seemed to open the door to Kalergi's ideas Europe-wide. Wonderful again, we're talking about 28 people, 28 countries, which was in fact the same number he had in 1923. Slightly different, but nonetheless, the same cluster of states. The far right, however, pick up this story somewhere around 2000, uh, and the um, conspiracy theory springs from a quotation out of an essay of his in 1925, republished 26, but it doesn't matter, it's a couple of liners in there, uh, where he says, well, describing the future of our uh, more and more inter interconnected world, um, 
we will finish up with a lot more marriage between the races and a lot more immigration. And what we'll finish up with is everyone looking a bit like the ancient Egyptians, that's what it's, who, are, who were also a multicultural, multiracial society. Uh, and he complements that with a couple of lines later to say, and those people are that degree more easily led by people who have a clearer idea of what they really want. Here we're into this great leaders and followers game again. Uh, and quotes the Jews, who are very prominent, as I said, in the societies of the 1920s in, in that part of Europe, uh, they would be suitable as leaders for this grouping. Now, to people who are anti-Semitic and who don't like Europe uh, and are right wing, not left wing, this is all grist to the mill. And it's all been podged together into the idea that the EU as it is now is pro-immigration in order to dilute the white race, in order to give free ride for international jury to, I don't know, make profits, I suppose. I don't know what they're thinking of. Um, and this is obviously the interpretation of the far right in the 2000s has nothing to do with what Kalugi was, Kalegi was saying in the 1920s. It quotes the words, but not the meaning. So then, what are they getting wrong about Kalergi? Uh, what what did oh, well, he mean just, that they're just, missing? Just about everything. <laughs> um, Kalergi wasn't saying this is necessarily a good idea. He was describing what was going to happen. And if more people marry across borders, then you're going to have mixed races. But he didn't recognize race as a, in that sense as a determinant. It was the Nazis who were insisting on race as being the thing that led to Teutonic domination of Slavs or gypsies or heaven knows what. Um, and Kudenhoff was just against it. That wasn't the criterion. That wasn't the criteria that mattered. What mattered for him was the quality of individuals. Hence this quote about the First World War and the masses as opposed to the leaders. The, the quality of individuals was, was really what mattered. They had to be highly intelligent. They had to be extremely honest. They had to be great leaders. They had to have, be charismatic. They had to be a bit like who Kalegi saw himself. <laughs> if you're like him, then you're on the right side, quite obviously. But then that's that's a political risk everyone runs. So before we close out, it's also very interesting. There's a connection between uh, this count and Casablanca, uh, the, oh, the yes. great classic movie. Maybe <laughs> for my listeners, I have a lot of younger listeners. They may not know yeah. uh, Casablanca, yeah. which is a shame, but uh, maybe you could talk about uh, the connection between Kalergi and Casablanca. Oh, well, if they haven't seen the film yet, I do hope they do. I mean, it, it's Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. And that's pretty good, pretty good. Um, and the the third character, um, they, these two are in a love relationship the, in Paris, in the war, the Second World War. And uh, the Ingrid Bergman is actually married to someone who isn't on on the screen to begin with. He only comes in halfway through. But the she's married to someone who has been interned in a Nazi concentration camp because he was a leader of the resistance across the whole of Europe. And he knew all the other resistance leaders and the Nazis wanted to torture this news, this information out of him. And a few scenes into the film, he, he escapes. He's suddenly back, he's on the scene and he's come back and reclaimed his wife who was in Paris and thought she was going off with 
Bergman on a train to the south, away from the Nazi invasion, and would get away to America or wherever they were going to go. Didn't know. So what happens is that the estranged couple are back together and walk into a gin joint in um, Morocco, in Casablanca, called Rick's Bar. And uh, in Rick's Bar plays out the antagonism between Nazis and the free world, the liberal order, uh, where the Nazi gets shot in the end. Uh, this is a spoiler. He gets shot and the couple fly away to Lisbon and the United States. And uh, the local scene, as it were, is a highly dramatic uh, breakup of the new relationship, which was just nascently forming between Bogart and Bergman in Paris before the husband came back on the scene and whereby the husband and Bogart are tussling, very gentlemanly manner, but tussling for the affections and the allegiance and who would best support the wife. It's a classic triangle, love, love scene, triangle, love triangle. And it's against the background of the Second World War and the Nazi liberal clash. And you can't miss it. I mean, it is, I think, the most shown film ever. You know, Star Wars rollover, you know, this one's still going strong. And and the 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 character, there was a character that was based on. Oh, yes, the, the, the character who comes in there, yes. he. The reason why we can associate Kudno Kalegi and this character so closely is that the man who played the, uh, the, the, the husband, escaped from the camps, was in fact at the same school as Kalergi at the time of his younger brother. The two families knew each other. And when this uh, student left the school uh, and said to his parents, I want to become an actor, they said, no, you've got to do something serious first. So he had to join a publishing house. Now, he didn't join Kudenhoof Kalergi's publishing house, but another one in Vienna. And so during that period in the 1930s, there were the family was close to them both. And the play itself is built on, the film itself is built on a play script, which was written by someone who went back into Vienna in 1938 and found out about these people, incidentally, because he was trying to sort out property and money problems for Jews who had either been interned or had fled, but still had assets left in Vienna. And so they were there for three, four months, and during that time, he and his wife wrote this play, which was bought out by then, um, I think it's Warner Brothers, I think, isn't it? Yes, Warner Brothers bought it for an extraordinarily big sum uh, at the time because someone saw this was going to be a good film. So in other words, this character of Victor Laszlo, yes, uh, Laszlo the, yeah. the, the, the Czech anti-fascist uh, in Casablanca, you know, there, there's many parallels, including he's this anti-Nazi. Stacks, stacks of parallels. He's a highly cultivated, he's played as a highly cultivated, uh, very genteel sort of um, leader figure uh, who has all the right ideas, is charismatic. He has a wonderful scene in Rick's bar where some Nazis are sitting drinking and want to play and sing Die Wacht am Rhein, which was a famous Nazi marching song. Uh, and he turns to the little combo there and, and conducts them in singing the Marseillaise and they, the rest of the participants in the bar stand up for the Marseillaise and boo the, boo the, the Nazis out. Great scenes, great scenes. So in closing here, I, I guess we're in a time, I think, of, of many 
great crises. I mean, hmm. I, I wonder if there's a lot we can learn from um, Count Kalergi in light of uh, Brexit, this Ukraine crisis, uh, insurgent nationalism globally, uh, global inequities, uh, rising climate change, and, and many other pressing issues. What do you think uh, is the importance of, of Count Kalergi in lieu of all these crises we face? Well, I think there are three, three big lessons. I'd say number one, he is totally open to new technology. He says new technology transforms the scene. We have to keep up with new technologies because new technologies change the geopolitical picture. And what he means by that is, I mentioned a little earlier, as man flight became normal after the First World War and only very experimental during that war, that changed the nature of warfare. That made the Luftwaffe important. Up till then, no one bothered about air forces. No one could fly. <laughs> it's the fact that you can fly makes that, and that transforms warfare. The scale of warfare, the speed of warfare, the destructive power of warfare, and the scope. So the geopolitical lesson is what you take out of technology. The geopolitical lesson is something that you must apply in Europe. He wasn't very concerned outside that, but must apply in Europe, uh, because that means each state has become so small that it's no longer able to protect its borders. If it can't protect its borders, what's the notion of nationality for? You have to have a notion, notion of nationality that is encompassed by a big enough border to be protected. And he's quite right there. Now you can fly from one end of Europe to the other. It depends what you're flying in, but if you're in a fast jet, it's a question of a couple of hours. Uh, if you're a fighter jet, and if you're in a rocket, you do it in minutes. And and the lesson to learn from that is that you have you know, that the, the old idea of nationality being a country was inadequate because countries are too small that they can't cope in a situation where distance has gone. Um, and the the second thing, I think I give you another quote of someone who knew his couldn't have Kalegi well, a man called Paul Henry Spark, who was a prime minister in the in the, in the Benelux countries after the war, um, who said that all the countries of Europe now are small, except those who don't realise it. And that is still a lingering feeling. Um, and you're seeing it actually in Ukraine when people are saying now the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm just bringing this because it's the current big talking point, obviously, the great turning point indeed. Um, Russia is learning that it is too small. It cannot do what it thought it could do, just as the Nazis in the end couldn't do what they thought they could do. Uh, and the whole picture now has to rest on consent and agreement and not on force. Um, these are lessons to take from what couldn't have experienced in his life, basically through the First World War, the interwar years, the war years, and the post-war years. And also, just a, a final thought here I wanted to get from you. I think that even today, when you talk about things like wanting to foster a more cooperative world or saying that we need more international cooperation to deal with uh, issues like climate change. I think uh, people that aren't even necessarily far right, I, I think there's people that have this almost knee-jerk reaction saying, well, what do you mean? Do you want us to get rid of uh, national sovereignty? And I think there's a lot of knee-jerk fear when you talk about international cooperation. And how do you think maybe Kalergi can help us overcome those 
knee-jerk reactions. That- I, I think he and his wife had it absolutely right. Ida Rowland, as I said, again, she was a big influence on him. They, they were coming back from America from one of their trips, and, and they stood on the rail of the ship, as it, the Beringia was the ship, as it came into Sherbrooke Harbour, and they leant on it and looked at each other and said they were European patriots. That doesn't mean that they didn't think that the French were French or the Brits were British, but that everyone could be patriotic about the, the big space in which they lived. So alongside the national nationality, so the individual nationality, could go this much bigger identity as being European. And, and he quotes also in, on several occasions in his writings, you look at India, for instance, or you look at China, and India... There are many, many, many different types of Indian, but they are all Indian. Their concept, their cultural concept is that they're Indian. Uh, Frankly, if you look at America, uh, there are vastly differences from Washington State to Washington, D.C., or let alone down to Florida, uh, and vice versa all over. You've got uh, lots of different types of Americans, but they're all fiercely American, and that's right and proper. Okay, you can have a big identity for which you are patriotic, but a smaller identity, which is intensely personal. It's where you may have been born or brought up or where your family is, or in some cases where your family came from, if you came into this big entity from somewhere else, so you've immigrated. Um, in the case of Europe, it's fascinating that the, the, all this European Europe, European Union that we now have began as just six countries in the 1950s, 51, six countries in a corner of Western Europe. And it's grown now. So many people living in the EU could have been in the EU earlier as immigrants from all the other European countries and perfectly well had a European identity as being part of the old European communities. Now it's grown bigger and their own country is also within it. That's fine. Whether you're in or out, you can still be European. The Norwegians and the Brits are technically outside the EU. Doesn't stop us being European. And I guess for me, you know, in a way, I I, I could see in Kalergi and, and his uh, hopes for pacifism and unity this idea that I, I think we have a choice in a lot of ways in the 21st century. Now, I think we can uh, try to cooperate more and understand each other more and share with each other more, or we have barbarism, essentially. Yeah. And it, it seems like that's what uh, Kalergi was fighting against, the slide into a, a sort of barbaric world. Yeah, in his very early writing, this is something I didn't stress in talking about Pan-Europa, the book, um, he sees the world as divided into, he didn't call them superpowers, he called them power centers. But it's what we in our terminology now would call superpowers. And quite obviously, he saw there was an American superpower, and that was based on Washington, but it was the Americas. And there was a Russian one, which was based on Moscow, and it was the whole of the Soviet Union, all the many, many member elements. Uh, and that there was a, a, a third one, uh, which was the British Empire at that time, based on London, and it included India, and it included Australia and Canada, and all that was within the British Empire in the 1920s. And there was another one that would be a bit vague. It was out in Asia. It was the China, Japan, Korea world. But there was a fifth one, and this was his dream, his utopia. The fifth one was going to be Europe because Europe was the equivalent of those big groups. Europe wasn't each individual state. It was the sum of the states. Well, I want to thank you again, Martin Bond, for coming on 
parallax views. Oh. And I recommend everyone pick up your book, Hitler's Thank Cosmopolitan you. Bastard, Count Richard Kudenhov Kalergi and his vision of Europe. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, JJ. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Martin Bond, author of Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard, Count Richard Kudenhove Kalergi, and his vision for Europe. Next up, we're speaking with Brian Grotsky, a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, to discuss the consequences of sanctions on the opposition to Putin in Russia. This conversation runs just short of a half an hour, and I want to get straight to it. So, without further ado, Brian Grotsky and I discuss Russia and sanctions. Welcome to Parallax Views, Brian Grotsky, professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of a rather interesting piece in The Conversation entitled Economic Sanctions May Deal Fatal Blow to Russia's Already Weak Domestic Opposition. How are you doing today, Brian? Good. Thank you for having me. So let's just get into the the meat and potatoes right away of this uh, op-ed you've written what should we make of the sanctions that have been made so far in light of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And uh, what do these sanctions mean? Also, if we could, uh, what's the extent of the sanctions? Because I think a lot of people, uh, they may not know the differences between, say, broad-based versus targeted sanctions. There's different types of sanctions, and I think the public needs to learn a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so these are both broad-based and they're targeted sanctions, um, and they are really crippling. So um, some of the things they do is they cut Russia off from this, what's known as the SWIFT system, which uh, basically governs all the transactions um, that go on between banks, uh, which b basically means that you know the Visa card quit working for a lot of Russians on, on the first day this hit. Uh, and it means that it's much more difficult for Russians to make transactions, Russian corporations, et cetera, um, as well as everyday Russians. So this is um, this is a huge blow. So they do go after uh, certain groups. They go after the um, or individuals, I should say, oligarchs, uh, and and even Putin and Lavrov, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but th the biggest mm, the biggest downside, I think, to these sanctions is also the biggest bonus, which is that they were so comprehensive and going after all these groups at once that they they're going to hit society really hard. So it's kind of interesting because I, I think when we talk about the broad-based sanctions versus targeted sanctions debate, people will point out, well, you can do targeted sanctions on uh, Putin and, and the oligarchs, but they'll just find ways to, uh, you know, hide their, their wealth. Uh, so those sanctions may not have an effect. And I, I think that's been used to say, well, this is why we need to do broad-based sanctions. You know, we, we have to get someone, right? Um, so how would you respond to that? I think that's, I mean, I think that's right. The targeted sanctions do tend to have difficulties. And actually, I mean, these guys are experienced in hiding their money. Not only that, they've been experiencing sanctions since 2014 to one degree or another. And so they've gotten even better. I mean, they've focused their efforts on ways of getting around these sanctions, including building up hard currency reserves in, in other currencies rather than US dollars. 
uh, including yuan, the Chinese currency, gold currency, well, gold, gold as a as a you know mineral. Uh, so they've they've moved away from the dollar in order to avoid this sort of thing. And they do hide money in lots of pots. So going back to the question, I mean, is it yeah, is it better to go after all of Russia? Um, so I mean, you know, there's that question. Uh, is that the only way to actually successfully get to Putin by going around and hitting his population? Uh, I mean, we don't have a lot of success doing that in the past. It's what you tend to find is that leaders, especially in authoritarian regimes, tend to be quite insulated from things like this. They will squeeze everybody else before they get squeezed themselves. So at the beginning of the article, you talk about um, how economic sanctions follow a quote unquote punishment logic. Uh, could you discuss what the punishment logic is? Yeah, so there are a couple of things going on here, and I focused on the punishment logic. Um, and this is typically what we see where what we're trying to do is we're trying to squeeze the local population to the point that they have sort of a, a, a revolt, right? I mean, that's a sort of broad, sort of almost crass way of putting it. It's, it's a little more you know, nuanced. Um, but what they do is it doesn't have to be a revolt against the regime, but they put pressure on the regime to back away from the policies that we don't like, right? Um, that the, the states are using sanctions to achieve. Uh, so the idea would be that people would be protesting in the streets enough and Putin would say, okay, this is enough of a headache that, hey, I'll, I'm willing to compromise. Let me back out of, uh, of this area, but I'll just keep Eastern Ukraine. And that's a bargain, right? So that's, that's one of the things, you know, it's, it's a, a mechanism to attain compromise. Um, so that's the idea of punishment logic. Now, a lot of people will say, in fact, I got some reaction to my piece, some people saying this is actually aimed at hurting the military capabilities of the state, which um, is kind of fallacious. I mean, when you think about how authoritarian regimes function, Putin will squeeze everybody before he squeezes his security apparatus. Uh, and that means that, you know, teachers won't get paid, hospitals won't get renovated, um, medicines will be more difficult to find, but he will find money to pay the security services. Uh, we see this in other regimes. We have seen this in other regimes as well. And then when it comes to empirical research, what, what does the empirical research uh, say about sanctions and whether they accomplish the goal or not? Well, the empirical research suggests that they very rarely accomplish the goal. I've seen some say maybe a third accomplish some goal, and it depends on what goals we're talking about. I mean, again, we could be talking about regime change, if that's the goal of the sanctions, which this is not in the case of Russia. We're talking about them backing out of Ukraine and acknowledging uh, the right of Ukraine as a sovereign country to exist. Um, but, uh, you know, so sometimes they have very broad goals, sometimes they have much more narrow goals. This would be on the more narrow side. Uh, but generally, they tend not to work very well. With, they do best uh, under conditions where they're being applied against democracies. And that's because of, I mean, the punishment logic, right? There's accountability for those leaders who are in power. In an authoritarian regime, you don't have the accountability structures. And so it's unreasonable to expect that they're going to succeed. Well, so in democratic, in the democratic states that you could use sanctions against, I guess the thinking is uh, you have opposition elites that can mobilize the the public against whoever is in power. But in, in Putin's Russia, I mean, I mean, we saw what happened to Navalny. So, you know, there's less of a chance of that. Much less of a chance. Now, I do want to emphasize that up until a couple of weeks ago, I would have classified Russia as, as this sort of hybrid regime. So not a democracy, definitely not a democracy, um, but not a, a, a totally authoritarian regime either. 
it was leaning towards authoritarianism pretty hard. But you did see, you have seen protests that have that have that have come up, and they've sometimes they've had impacts. In 2018, for example, there was a big protest against efforts by Putin and his uh, pals to increase the age of retirement, and large numbers of people came into the streets, and Putin backed down. And I think that's significant. Um, but this is in 2018. This is 2022, and we've seen a lot of changes over time, um, and especially just over the last two weeks. I mean, I've had I've had friends in Russia who've told me that this feels like 1937 um, to them, you know, where there's been such a crackdown um, that it 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 just squeezes um, any breathing space out of their bodies, and so it makes it much more difficult. So, how exactly do these sanctions harm uh, opposition and, and say like the? I mean, there's been a massive wave of protests. I've I've talked. Uh, to people in Russia who are part of these protests. Uh, and, you know, I think most people will say, well, it's it's going to be just the clampdowns that harm these protests. But you're saying uh, the sanctions could actually harm these protests as well. Well, it's a circular sort of thing. I mean, basically, when you, impl- when you implement sanctions, the regime is going to clamp down on any potential opposition, knowing that more opposition is going to come out into the streets in the first place. And that's what he's done. I mean, he's He's essentially said, you know, he's, he's, he's made it much more difficult. The, you, you can get prison sentences and large fines for, uh, for being in those p- protests. Um, and, you know, besides that, um, he's gone after the media, which makes it more difficult for people to, to sort of galvanize. Now, I will say that a lot of Russians use social media, but now social media is being cracked down on as well. Um, probably that's the reason. I mean, about 40% of Russians say they get information from social media. So where do you go? to clamp down information right there. So let's talk about that. What, what do you think the significance is of, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, they've, they've banned Facebook in, in um, Russia now? They have. I mean, if you have a VPN, uh, you can get around that. I've, I've been in touch with people who have been doing that. Um, I don't know technologically how, how viable that is in the long term. I would, would assume that Russia would get, the Russian authorities would get smarter about that and crack down on that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people are, are blocked from Facebook and, and other, um, other social media as well. And that sort of gets into another aspect of your article where you talk about uh, how the Kremlin sort of controls the narrative um, on its own turf. And you say that uh, Putin could use uh, his information machine to convert uh, past Western sanctions into advantage. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more in detail? Yeah. So, I mean, really, since Putin has come to power, and even before he came to power uh, in the late 1990s, um, he has been approaching Russian foreign policy as there is a Western encirclement, and this is a danger to us. His narrative has become more and more, for the average Russian, more and more believable thanks to Russian propaganda, Russian state news, um, but also because we launched sanctions uh, in 2014. And so he could he could sort of defray any responsibility for a, a flailing economy or a sluggish economy, at least, um, looking at the West and saying, hey, this is their fault. And now, now with these crippling sanctions, it makes it much easier. It's called the rally around the flag effect. And we saw a little bit of this after 2014. Um, we'll probably see a lot more right now because a lot of Russians, nearly 60% from a poll I saw a couple of days ago, actually support uh, this what do they call it? The special operation, right? It's not allowed to be called a, an invasion or a war that's punishable for 10 or 15 years in prison. Um, so a lot of people do support this. 
And you also talk a little bit about um, sanctions having a long track record of weakening political freedoms in the target state. How does that work? Well, it works in a couple of ways. First of all, when you have sanctions, you don't have, you're not actually providing support. A lot of these organizations and um, you know potential opposition, um, they depend on donors, right? So, um, you know, I mean, you may have a, and, and so when I talk about opposition, I'm talking about maybe independent would be better, a better word than opposition. So for example, independent press, um, they're often not viable economically. And so they will re re rely on money from, for example, USAID or other organizations in Germany and Japan, wherever, um, external organizations. Um, with the sanctions, you no longer have the funding sources. So that's one thing. Um, now, the sanctions can also hurt the opposition in other ways. Um, they are going to be the first ones who are probably going to lose their jobs because there's going to be this sort of crackdown um, on these individuals. Um, and, and, you know, so they're going to suffer economically times two, right? They'll lose their jobs and they're, they're facing a much more difficult, the ruble is sliding, their savings are disappearing. Um, so those are a couple ways. So then I guess the, the response some people would have is, well, if we don't do this, these sanctions, you know, okay, maybe it'll hurt uh, the opposition and the anti-war protesters, but can can the anti-war protesters really um, lead to an uprising anyways? I, I mean, people say, you know, maybe this is a, a price we have to pay. How would you respond to that? Um, yeah, I mean, from, you know, standing here, I was, in fact, I, you know, I was, I was moved by the fact that the Europeans were on board so quickly on these sanctions, because it's really rare that that happens. I used to be a, a political economic officer at the U.S. Embassy in Tashkent, and I remember we had a refugee issue where the Uzbeks were harassing refugees, and we tried to organize a demarche, this official diplomatic dialogue with between us, or really uh, demands between the West and Uzbekistan, and it was so hard to get the Europeans on board because they have all these different countries, they all have to get their own countries on board. So it was really impressive to see these sanctions. Now, that said, I mean, sanctions are this, this awful middle ground where diplomacy isn't working, no one wants to get involved in the military, so we have to do something. So what And, do and we I do? just wanna say real quickly too, I, I think, I, I hope I didn't come off as, as, I'm very skeptical of sanctions in a lot of ways, just because I think broad-based sanctions really hurt civilian populations. So I wasn't saying, you know, oh, th this is the only thing we can do, and this is great that we have to do this. And it's, yeah, yeah it's it's a very difficult topic. But go on. No, you're. I mean, you're right. And you know what? Anyone who who looks at sanctions will know that they're not great, but they are this sort of horrible compromise where we feel like we need to do something, and we feel like we are doing something. But I mean, I could tell you, um, you know, I I've done research in in Serbia, the former Yugoslavia, for example, and those sanctions if they had an impact, and it's really hard to decide to, to figure out whether they had an impact, because if they did, it was nearly 10 years in, it was about nine years after they were first launched. Um, and so yeah, the economy got really horrible, people got really poor. Um, cultural sanctions are also an important thing to, to remember. Um, when I was, in, I was doing research in South Africa, and people there talked about how the cultural sanctions were some of the most important. Um, because uh, another thing that happens under sanction regimes is that they build up the domestic base for whatever they're missing. And they might not be as good products, um, but over years, they can eventually churn out some alternatives. Um, now, cultural elements are, aren't so easy. So for example, FIFA um, pushing Russia out for now, suspending Russia, um, that actually has a surprising impact on, on 
local populations. I'm not sure how it would in this particular context right now where so many people are rallying around this quote unquote anti-Nazi um, free our ethnic brethren from genocide sort of operation. Um, that's, you know, again, nationalism is something that Slobodan Milosevic in the former Yugoslavia really used to help defray the costs of sanctions um, from his public. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because the, the concern I always have is that uh, sanctions, whether it's sanctions on Iran or or sanctions on Russia, that these can actually bolster support for hardliners and nationalists. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, they certainly can. I mean, when you look at you know some of the people who are the part of what we call the Siloviki, the the um, the the security forces, the military, this this. Um, one particularly strong faction around uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, when you look at some of these guys, there's Nikolai Patrushkev, who's the head of the Security Council. He has um, definitely been on the same page as, as Putin over the last 20 years, which is that the West is encircling us, the West, especially the United States. The West is often code for the United States, um, but the West is trying to destroy Russia. Um, I mean, I think these guys, some of these guys actually think this. Um, same thing with Sergei Narishkin, who's head of Russia's foreign intelligence services, um, you know, and 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 these others, Bortnikov, who's head of the FSB, Sergei Shoigu, who's head of the military. These guys are all very hardline to begin with. When people start talking about a potential coup from the Siloviki, from the security um, areas, I mean, none of us are good at predicting things. Um, journalists, academics policymakers, none of us, intelligence services, we're just not good. What we are good at is, is figuring out possible things that could happen and how we might respond. But when I hear people talking about how there could be some sort of coup against Putin, I would never dismiss anything like that, but I think it's incredibly unlikely. He is surrounded by like-minded people and they are determined to, to disrupt the West in whatever way they can. Before we close out, you also discuss um some of the reactions in Russia, particularly from former Russian president uh, Medvedev. Um, could you talk about uh, what he has sort of said about going back on its human rights promises, Russia going back on its human rights promises and what this entails? Yeah, I, I, he wasn't specific. He, oh, he was actually in that particular case that I mentioned and I haven't, I haven't followed his words since. I mean, what he said basically when the Council of Europe kicked or suspended um, Russia, as he said, well, great, we can reinstate the death penalty, which is one of the things that you had to not have in order to be in the Council of Europe. Um, and, you know, he made it clear that we've been respecting human rights to the degree that we felt compelled to by being part of this international organization. If we're not there, we can start to go our own way. And Russia has started to go um, its own way. I mean, it was going there before. It's just been much more vicious over the last couple of weeks. It sounds like it's accelerated a lot. Absolutely. You know, I, I think you mentioned um, more than 7,000 protesters uh, arrested within the first week of the war, ramping up of censorship, um, and even, I think, closing down uh, a, a liberal media outlet in Russia as well, right? Two of them. Uh, one is this, this longstanding liberal media outfit called um, Echo Moskvi, the Echo of Moscow um, radio station. Um, that was shut down. And then um, the TV station Dost's which is rain, um, they, uh, the editor had to flee um, fairly soon after that. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, and, and uh, there's, there's been reporting on the number of journalists who have left, um, and, but it's not just journalists. I have a lot of friends who 
are from that liberal sort of side that you know the academics or people involved um in in reporting and independent um and independent organizations and they're all very scared um they're very scared and i think they should be very scared it's very very sad so i guess the bottom line here with regards to the sanctions i mean are they going to do more harm than good and if they are what are the other alternatives that's exactly the problem i mean sanctions are usually put down when there are no good alternatives i mean one thing that they do do is they they at least show moral approbation right they provide some sort of comfort perhaps to to the ukrainians i mean but they're so, they fall short of doing they tend to fall short of doing anything concrete they're certainly not going to stop the civilians or the military getting killed in 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 ukraine now um if anything they would have an effect probably months years later uh, i mean this is this is a very it's, daunting it's important process. to note that because i mean right now this is a a brutal war taking place right now you know exactly. uh years later or months later you know uh yeah i mean you know and I, I again i have to say and no one has a good answer for this i mean do we want to put troops there i mean that does really raise huge questions uh, about a, a potential world war and, and nuclear weapons i mean that's very scary even the talk right now about biological weapons potentially being used in chemical weapons and russia's used these recently the chemical weapons in syria um so that's also i mean are we going to put down a red line Probably not, because what are we going to do with that red line? We've done what we can, I think, at this point, and now we're kind of going to have to keep keep arming the Ukrainians and and sit back and wait. Uh, I, I was going to say, to be honest with you, and I, I don't know if you share my view on this, hmm. even the talk of putting up a no-fly zone scares me a little bit. I, I think that yeah. could have unintended consequences. Absolutely. And that's why we've been very clear that, you know, the U.S. government has said, we can't do that. The British, the ever, NATO has said, we can't do that. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing, uh, maybe not even just about the article, about, but, but about where you think things stand with regards to uh, this invasion of Ukraine uh, by Putin um, and, and all the debate that everyone is having now? I mean, you know, I, I, the, the debates about NATO, I don't think they're just limited uh, to uh, obviously pro-Russian elements. I've, I've seen people in foreign policy circles debate uh, about, um, you know, should, you know, maybe it would be best if we, you know, made clear that Ukraine would remain neutral. Where, where do you stand on those type of things? Um, it's a little late for that now. Um, I, I mean... What I mean by that is that Russia, in the Russian press, so I've been following the Russian press since around 2014, since after Crimea, and they've made lots of Russian news programs. There's one called 60 Minutes um, that they have, and it's just Russian propaganda. Um, but also on the Russian news itself, what you see a lot of is this talk about fascists, neo-fascists in Ukraine, um, and the West trying to pull them closer, and um, it sort of doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, but what you saw as we got closer to this is Putin beginning to, I mean, the drumbeat got louder and Putin also began to use, of course, the genocide um, term. And once you use the, the genocide term, um, this is really hard to back down from. I mean, Putin can't say, okay, well, you know, we've done what we need to, let's just walk away um, from this Ukraine without looking at his people and, and, and being questioned whether he's really looking out for ethnic Russians abroad. The other broader question is, 
um, how far this would go. And I, I, I absolutely don't think that Putin's intent on creating a new Soviet Union, but there are concerns. I mean, um, I do a lot in Central Asia and Kazakhstan, of course, um, has a large number of Russians and they're, yeah, go ahead. I see Why do you think that Putin isn't intent on creating a new Soviet Union? Because my thinking on that was, I don't think he would find that manageable, but I, I want to get your thought on that. I agree. Well, first of all, he he literally couldn't because the Baltics are in NATO and they're not going anywhere. Um, I, we used to have this debate. My wife is from Poland and we used to have this debate over whether NATO was really going to step in if Russia invaded Poland. And I think about 15 years ago, I still had open questions. 10 years ago, a little less today. I, I don't have any questions at all. I think NATO has made it very clear um, that it would step in. And the reason I say that is because the reason that we have soldiers there is not to stop a Russian invasion. It's so that they die, so that we have a credible commitment um, to get involved. Uh, and so I think I think that credible commitment's there. Um, so the Baltics couldn't go back to this. Um, you, you'll remember that the, uh, towards the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of nationalism in a lot of these republics, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, even in Central Asia, country uh, republics at the time that were not crazy about independence. Um, but once they actually gained their independence, they became very jealous of it, and none of them want to relinquish that. Uh, it would be very, very difficult. I don't think Russia would would make a move like that. Now, again, though, um, there are there are um, Russian ethnic Russian populations, especially I think in Kazakhstan, um, where you could imagine Putin at some point in the future, depending on how Ukraine goes, um, maybe looking down that direction as well. Of course, right now he's got very good relations with Kazakhstan, so it doesn't seem nearly as likely. And he's not afraid that Kazakhstan's going to move towards NATO because it's nowhere in that direction. Yeah, I, I think it's all, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I, I think a lot of things are very murky right now uh, in the sense that I don't think we're in Putin's head or the head of um, people in his inner circle. So I can't tell if they really believe that, you know, uh, NATO is out to get them or not. And part of me thinks, you know, it's possible they do think that for whatever reason. Um, and another part of me uh, thinks, OK, this is all just completely cynical. But I, I don't think we can tell uh, what is going on in their minds. I mean, you're, ultimately, you're probably right. I think we have a lot of evidence, given what Putin said over the last 25 years since the late 1990s, um, that he really is um, cognizant of this or views this as a security risk. Um, he said that over and over and over again. I mean, um, I, 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 I sort of lean towards that view, but I, I'm trying to be- um, You're right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you are right. We don't know. And that's why, that's why honestly, we didn't know as much as we knew there was going to be an invasion, we didn't really know there, right? There's this optimistic bias where, you know, people are like, well, it probably won't. I mean, you know, there's also a normalcy bias where we, well, it hasn't happened before, right? Is it going to happen now? And so people kind of watched this and they were like, probably not. And of course, there was also our intelligence failures in Afghanistan, which made a lot of Europeans not really believe us when, when Biden was literally jumping up, not literally, he was jumping up and down saying, look, they're really going to do this. Uh, you know, and no one really bought it. And uh, but a lot of people were very close to this. I mean, I've been saying for years that sooner or later there will be a military conflict. But I definitely didn't predict that this was going to be it. I mean, he just had a bluff a year ago, right? Um, it was just hard to. It, it's hard to almost wrap your head around. Even if you see the train coming, you're kind of like, well, it's just going to stop, right? It, I mean, it can't really 
Right. Well, right. I think a lot of people maybe had the idea that he would do very minor incursions over the, exactly. the this whole issue with Donetsk and, and Luhansk. I don't think people expected him to go into Kiev. Exactly. But even but but that's my point, which is that we we saw the troops right there where they they were not anywhere near. You know, some of the troops were nowhere near the eastern borders. And so we knew that it looked like he was going to do this, but we just couldn't believe it. Um, I mean, going into going into Lugansk and Donetsk would not have been a surprise at all. Um, but the way he was making this look like this much more ominous invasion, it was kind of like, well, it's got to be maybe a bluff uh, until it turned out it wasn't. So you're right. I mean, getting inside his head is a tough one. So in closing, what do you hope that listeners have, have gotten out of this uh, past 30 or so minutes of, of conversation that we've had? Well, I hope they understand that I mean, economic sanctions are, um, they're almost in a sense, the weapon of the weak, right? They're, they're kind of like, we don't really have a choice and we have to do something. Um, and it's hard to fight with them because it seems like we do have to do something, um, but we need to be very cognizant of the side effects um, of the, the collateral damage um, that we're going to be inflicting because we will inflict that and we're already doing that. And, and many of the liberal Russians are trying to leave the country now. Others are scared and they're being much quieter than they used to be. And I think this is important. One of my friends in Russia said, hey, look, the last 30 years of Western foreign policy of supporting us, these liberal Russians who make up, who knows, maybe a quarter of the Russian population, all that's just turning to dust. And I think that's worth remembering. Well, I want to thank you again, Brian Grotsky, for coming on Parallax Views. Yeah, thank you very much, JJ. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Brian Grotsky and Martin Bond. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's multiple tiers on the Patreon page. Any amount of support will help, even a dollar, but you can also support me at the 5 10 15 and even $100 tiers. Any of your financial help is very very much appreciate it. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
afraid. I'm not afraid.